After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I'm back with Mind Rolling, and I'm with Norma Levine, who has written some extraordinary books, and I just want to welcome you to the podcast, Norma. Thank you very much. Great to have you. So I kind of wanted to tell people what it is that uh, how I met you was basically through Lama Surya Das. And uh, and the book that I uh, was introduced to is called The Miraculous 16th Karmapa. Okay, here's the book. I can't more highly recommend this book. This book is phenomenal. And uh, Norma, I have to say that it uh, it really is so similar. I don't know if you know this book that Ramdas compiled. Uh, called Miracle of Love, which basically is stories of Neem Karoli Baba that he compiled over many years in India. I see. Yeah. and I I, I don't know that book. No, I'll find it now. Yeah, no, you, I think you didn't. There's so, it's just parallel, which, uh, I mean, I should tell you this thing, which many of my listeners know because I've told it before. But uh, when His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa, uh, I believe the last time he was in L.A., it might have been around 1980, not long before he left, uh, he did a black hat ceremony in Los Angeles, which I went to. And that was the only time I had his uh, darshan. And, And so people lined up. And he would put put the kata scarf on them, do the offering. And so it was a line. And when I got maybe 10 feet from him and, and I could feel him, uh, I just, I remember the first thought I had was, oh, Jesus, it's just the same as Neem Karoli Baba. Whatever that thing was that was beyond duality, beyond any kind of mental attribution that I could make, uh, that thing was the same. And I'll never forget that. And then when, so when I got this book, I, and started reading through it, again, the parallels uh, of these two beings are extraordinary. Um, And actually, uh, when, 
one of our satsang from back in the day, a man named uh, Larry Brilliant and his wife Girija. I don't know if you know, Larry was famous for um, helping uh, eradicate smallpox back in that day. There's a great book called Sometimes Brilliant that tells his story. Um, he went to visit Karmapa, His Holiness, before he left, uh, maybe in the late 70s. And, and he asked, Karmapa said, well, who are you? Where do you come from? Whatever. And uh, when he's, Larry said, I'm a, a devotee of Neem Karoli Baba, Larry and Girija, he said, oh, great, great bodhisattva. He oh, really? was, yeah, he was so highly um, respectful of Maharaji. Uh, and they had a whole dialogue, which was uh, pretty amazing about that. So, so there's a lot of connectivity um, between the two. Um, and uh, I just thought I wanted to just read one story. Okay. It's not too long. Uh, everybody just to give you a feel of what I'm saying, those of you who uh, know about Neem Karoli Baba, many of you do because I talk about him all the time. And those of you who have read Miracle of Love, uh, just uh, listen to this. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a, a prologue here. I think you must have written. It was customary in Tibet to summon a Lama when a family member passed away which usually took place at home, priestly rites would then be performed. And if possible, the consciousness of the recently deceased would be transferred to one of the Buddha fields, transcendent paradise. A powerful practitioner can instantaneously deliver his own consciousness or that of the deceased to such an enlightened realm through the secret yogic practice known as Pawa, consciousness transference. Okay, so that gives you an idea what we're talking about here. So one day, the head of a nomadic household in desolate windswept northern Tibet passed away. In such a sparsely inhabited region, it was rare to find monasteries and lamas, so the family members wondered what to do. They happened to spot a ragged individual traveling on foot who appeared as if he could be either an itinerant yogi or a beggar. Therefore, they went to inquire. The mendicant turned out to be, in fact, a lama. The grieving family requested his ministrations for the deceased, and he complied. When he reached the man's deathbed and began his incantations, the family respectfully requested the lama to perform poa, or consciousness transference, in order to deliver the deceased to superior rebirth in the western Buddha field of Dewachin, the sphere of sublime delight. The Lama, however, said, I'm just a poor, unlettered practitioner of the Buddha's teachings. I have not mastered that esoteric practice, but I do have one positive quality, infinite faith in the living Buddha named Lama Karmapa. He is like the great gate to Dewachin. Then he began reciting again and again and again the famous name mantra of the Karmapa, Karmapa Kenyo. Karmapa Kenya, Karmapa Kenya. And after each and every rosary, a fervent recitation, he would hit the corpse with his prayer beads, commanding that in the name of Buddha Karmapa, 
the spirit of the deceased be reborn in Dewachin, that paradise beyond the setting sun. After some time, everybody noticed that the signs of successful consciousness transference began to appear. Hair fell from the top of the corpse's head. There was a pleasant fragrance in the air, and a large bump appeared at the crown aperture where the spirit of the deceased had departed for the other world. Everyone present rejoiced and gratefully thanked the mendicant lama. Moreover, all began to faithfully practice the mantra of the Karmapa, praying to realize the great freedom and bliss of Dewachin in this very lifetime. The traveling Lama soon continued on his journey. One day he heard that the omniscient 16th Karmapa was visiting South Tibet. He traveled there to meet him. The first thing the clairvoyant Karmapa said to him was, that was a difficult poa we performed up there in the north, wasn't it? <laughs> Then Karmapa laughed aloud, hitting the other lama with his rosary, and the mendicant knew with unshakable certainty that the Karmapa is an omniscient living Buddha, truly a master of liberating Buddha activity, who always keeps his disciples wherever they are in his heart and mind. So great, right? Beautiful, yeah. It so really great. is beautiful. Yeah, and, um, yeah. This is Suryadas, right? I think. Yes, indeed. Yeah. You told that story. Yeah. Uh, and similarly, Maharaji would say to us, I will never let go of your hand living in the hearts and minds. Uh, so, everybody out there, get this book, okay? And it's available, right? Through Amazon? Normal? Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. available. And, uh, of course, uh, in the U.S., as I imagine most of your listeners are yeah. uh, in the U.S., of course, it's available everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, everybody, this is what completely drew me to this book. And then, um, Norma, you wrote another book about uh, Freda Betty, right? Baby, yes. Yeah, that is also extraordinary because she had also direct experience with Karmapa. So, and of course, all of this is tied together really by 16th Karmapa. So then, so I'm talking to Norma the other day and she says, well, you think you must read this other book you probably don't know about. I said, yeah, really? She said, yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, I, I went and got it, and uh, what's the name of the book, Norma? Chronicles of Love and, and Death. Death, right. I've got Which, a copy. Actually, I've got a copy here if you want to see it. Um, uh, I was going to call it Tantric Sex, Black Magic, and Crazy Love, actually. That's what I was oh, going really? to call it. And then I thought, oh, don't be ridiculous. That is so sensational. You know, it belongs in a, a kind of um, newspaper. <sighs> Fortunately, reason prevailed, and I called it uh, <laughs> Chronicles of Love and Death. But when I say uh, tantric sex, black magic, and crazy love, I mean these are the words that actually do describe it. Yeah. And um, uh, I'm not trying to lure anybody in with promises of uh, you know, graphic descriptions of that nature. Well, But it uh, is quite graphic. It's did you think it was um 
I was, shall we say, I had no idea of what, I mean, we did discuss in the very beginning that there was some analogies in this book that uh, would create a conversation that has been going on for ages, I'm sure, oh, yes. but is, yes, is yes. so prominent in what's going on with spiritual, different spiritual traditions yes. and masters that come over to the, to the West and so on. And it would, it would help to uh, uh, put a container in there around this whole subject. Uh, that we can talk about. So we need. So when I read, I had no idea, Norma. <laughs> I, I could. You said. You know what you said to me. You said, "Well, just you know, there's not a lot of time before we're going to talk. So just skim through it. You know, you'll get an idea." I couldn't skim through it. I could. I. I had. I was like. Uh, it was a page turner, right? It's a page turner, because you know it's so like you don't know what's going to happen, kind of thing, and it's just a, it's an extraordinary life yes. experience yes yes well it, it was and uh, for for your readers i have to say um to introduce it properly uh, the subtitle is my years with the lost spiritual king of bhutan now what apart from having had this life-changing experience with uh, a man who was um seen as a 10th level bodhisattva um and uh I was his first woman, and we had a uh, at least I would say five year relationship, and then for many more years after that, uh, five years in a, a uh, sexual relationship, and then many years after that, it continued on another level, mostly um, not such a you know, to, to try to work out what had happened, basically, you know, mm. to process the whole thing. And uh, this, the spiritual king of Bhutan was, uh, what I wanted to do was put it into the, in an historical context, because the spiritual king of Bhutan is known as the Shabdrung of Bhutan. And he is really, if you read his story, the story of the Shabdrung, which is available also, uh, in a book called um, Bhutan by Michael Aris, who was married to um, the Burmese uh, princess, um, Aung San Suu Kyi. Is she a princess? I'm not sure. Burmese. Yes, oh. she is. I think she was a princess or is a princess or the Burmese um, Nobel Prize winner who is now famous for uh, or infamous uh, for uh, some of the atrocities in that are going on in the country. But anyway, just not to diverge uh, too much, uh, but um, he wrote a book about the Shabdrungs and he got so far in the book and then basically it's kind of wiped out the history. He wiped out the history because if you told the real history of the King of Bhutan. I'm not saying he doesn't tell the history, but he doesn't really go into it too much. He mm. kind of excuses it, you know? Uh, will someone rid me of this troublesome priest, for example? Like, like um, you know, it basically he arranged for the assassination. This man arranged for the assassination of um, the Shabdrung of Bhutan in 1934. So he was a tribal chieftain, and then he made himself into, uh, into an hereditary king. 
And it is that hereditary kingship which now rules Bhutan. So this man that I was with was the real spiritual king. And um, he was living in exile in India because previous incarnations had been um, assassinated. At least two, at least two. So when I got to meet him, I knew something of his personal history and the history of Bhutan. I was sort of inducted into it in a very strange way. Very strange. The whole thing was strange to say the least. And, um, and I was completely unprepared. I felt like I was walking onto, um, uh, onto the stage and I'd been handed a part and I, I, I really didn't know what the lines were, you know, and I was sort mm. of, uh, I, I was one of the stars of the, of the film and nobody told me anything about it. And that's how I felt all the way through. So it's a story of, um, I'll read what I wrote in here about it. This is a true story of a spiritual journey and the incredible but all too human love between a Western woman and a high reincarnate Lama, the spiritual king of Bhutan. It is neither biography nor autobiography. It is a play that arose and disappeared like an illusion a magical display of comedy and tragedy, history, romance, and transcendence. Mm. So that gives you some idea of the scope of the book, I think. Um, okay, but one thing we need to make plain, this wasn't, uh, how old were you when you first went over well, the Indian? I was in, when I first met him, I was in my late 30s. Late 30s, oh. Yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. I was in my late thirties. I was I was recently uh, uh, I moved over from uh, England to um, India and was living at uh, Sherabling Monastery in the foothills of the Himalayas, which is the monastery of uh, Sita Rinpoche, hmm. who was my guru. And yeah. I was I think I was either mid thirties, probably mid thirties. Hmm. And uh, just so everybody knows. Okay, Norma wasn't just, uh, was not, never mind, a hippie girl who went over to India to smoke charis and live in Goa, okay, or even in the Kulu. Um, the reality is that you were a serious practitioner who uh, did some very intensive retreats there. Talk about that a little bit. Yes, I did. I, I was um, very inspired by my guru, Sita Rinpoche, with whom I had a very, very intimate, not physical, absolutely not physical, but intimate mind connection. And uh, he was such a, he was such an important influence on my life that um, I just did whatever he said to do, really. I had, um, you know, surrendered body, speech and mind, or so I thought. Of course, uh, that was not uh, conclusive at all. But um, uh, I did a long retreat. Um, well, what he said was basically, if you want to be a yogini, you have to do a lot of practice. So he gave me, um, well, he gave me, I mean, everyone at that time, all the Westerners at that time, of whom there were only about 10, uh, this was 1980 roughly 1980 to 1985, uh, we, we were all doing um, the, the four foundations, uh, which is um, common for Vajrayana Buddhism, uh, 
uh, prostrations and Dorja Sempa and, uh, you, you know, body, speech, mind purification, guru yoga. And then I did a uh, long uh, uh, nunyes, which is uh, fasting purification. Um, and that was 108 sets of which I completed about half and before I got too ill to um, be able to continue and he said to stop and that was a uh, very very rigorous very rigorous <clears throat> in fact I have an aversion to waking up early in the morning now <laughs> it was it was like that it was like you have to get up at uh, dawn not dawn before dawn about an hour before dawn and um, prostrate do the practice prostrating don't drink anything until about midday and um, then, you know, carry on and uh, you're fasting the rest of the time. So mm. it's one day um, eating. I think you can eat breakfast. I could say, I remember you can eat breakfast and you can eat lunch of one day and then you go all the next day from that afternoon till the very next day, all the way through that next day, not eating or drinking anything at all and prostrating. And this Jesus. was in... Uh, it was it was it was tough. I mean, it's a good way to lose weight as well. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, that's not the point. Uh, you do you do develop a lot of um, you know muscles, and uh, you look you know you can look pretty strong after doing this. And I did feel uh, that I needed to stop, however, because I had a stomach. Um, yeah, dysentery, right? Amoebas. Amoebas and that kind of thing. And you're not supposed to take any medicine while you're doing it. So mm. therefore, you know, um, you know, if you want to make life tough for yourself and you really want to continue on this path and do what the guru uh, recommends, then you just kind of go ahead and do it. So I did that. And then I was put into another retreat for six months doing another guru yoga practice of Milarepa. And uh, then, anyway, things happened. So how did you get there? I met the Shabdrung somewhere in between. I met the Shabdrung of Bhutan, um, and he came to the monastery uh, to I find mean, yeah. yeah, no, so let's go back a little bit, like, you know, formative years. What do you remember that led you to even want to hear about such a path or uh, that the... Uh, there was a way to transform uh, one's story, attachment to thoughts, thinking the ego is real. What? How did that evolve? So yeah, you that, thought that, of any of this? Yeah, that came about because I met the 16th Karmapa. So before that, nothing. You, you had no uh, idea, had not had any kind of experience uh, that there was a path? Right before, right before, I, I met uh, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, right before, in, again, in, in, in Scotland, where, you know, not, I wasn't living in Scotland, but I, I went there by chance to Scotland, and it seemed to be the same chance. chance, that's right, I have to use these words which are not really effective, but, <laughs> you know, auspicious coincidence brought me to um, Sammy Ling. Uh, on the borders of Scotland and England, and without knowing it, not without knowing that he was going to be there, I thought I was going. I thought I was going to visit a friend in northern Scotland who lived in a castle, 
a friend that I had met at university, a Scottish lord uh -huh. called Alex, Lord Alex Urquhart. I thought I was going there. And then on the way, I phoned him and he said, oh, don't come right now. Um, because Annabelle, his wife, had been taken ill and was in hospital. So he said, you know, give it a few days. So I, um, I stayed at Sammy Ling for those few days. And uh, it, that was where I met uh, Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. And as soon as I saw him, well, I knew that um, this was um, the ultimate reality. So I didn't know anything about Buddhism, nothing, nothing. And mm -hmm. I wasn't even, it wasn't even known to myself that I was looking for anything. Mm. I, I wasn't on a spiritual search, but that's where it stopped. I didn't go to Scotland to see Alex, Lord Alex. I did, I never saw him again. I phoned, I, I'm not even sure if I phoned him to say I'm not coming, but, but I didn't go. I stayed at Sammy Ling and sat there while Dilgo Kensi did the, um, uh, the practices that were um, just before the uh, Tibetan New Year, just before Losar. Mm. I just sat there, sat mm. there and took it all in. And then very soon after that, I think it was about a year later, that um, the 16th Karmapa came to within five miles of where I was living. And I was in touch, at that point, I was in touch with some Buddhists in the area. Well, there were only two, as far as I know. One, one um, you know, a couple called Kurt and Maggie Schaphauser, who had a, a house in the Black Mountains of Wales, and that was where I was living. And I heard from, from Kurt that um, the 16th Karmapa was coming, and I hadn't heard of the 16th Karmapa, even though I had met Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. It was somewhere like, you know, the 16th Karmapa. Well, who's he? And so I went and he did the black crown ceremony in a room that was, well, it was hardly big enough to fit a throne and his monks with their jowlings, with their long horns. And how many people were seated inside? Maybe 20, 25, and then they were coming out the doorway and I was somewhere, I was somewhere inside, I'm sure I was. And, and he did the black crown ceremony in this, in this very small space. Well, as soon as I saw the 16th, I, I was dumbstruck. I couldn't, I couldn't say a word. I couldn't say a word and I never ever spoke to him because I thought that he is so far beyond speaking that there's no point in even trying. Like I didn't, uh, it knocked all the concepts away. Mm. You know, it was, it was, uh, a, now I recognize it as a, an experience of um, like a, what they call pointing out instruction. In other words, it's an experience that, cannot be conveyed any other way but except through the presence of an enlightened master there are no words for it and mm. there are different ways of getting um, uh, you know students to wake up but this way was it, it changed my whole life literally changed my that experience with the karmapa changed my whole life mm. and shortly afterwards 
my boyfriend and I got on a bus and uh, went to find Karmapa in Sikkim, just like that. Just, That's your first time going to India. That was your first time going to India. Yeah. Mm. Um, by the way, everybody, you hear me talk about Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche often. Uh, he is one of my favorite teachers. He uh, is extraordinary, and I recommend we recommend on the podcast show notes his books regularly. And uh, for you to have, I mean, that was your opening. Oh, gee, I happen to, oh, there's some llama over there. Dilko Kenzie Rinpoche. This is uh, extraordinary. And then to be followed up by uh, 16th. uh, Right next, right within miles of where I was living, you know. That was, you know, very unusual. It's called uh, Very Good Karmas. Very Good Karma, Past Life Karma. Yeah. none of this shit happens without that none of it i mean and and we think and you know and you hear a story like this everybody you know you think you know what you're doing and you are making moves to it like you see that there is a path you have an experience with the could be a psychedelic a piece of music a book uh going seeing somebody that says do this or why don't you go here or there and you think that you're in control of everything. This is a great example here, Norma, where you had no idea about anything. You were going to see a lord <laughs> of a manor, right? <laughs> Pretty graceful. Yeah. Yeah, I was an academic. I, I have to tell you, I was an academic. I, I did, you know, uh, BA, MA, PhD, all that. By the time, and then I dropped out, you know, I dropped out and opened up a natural food shop in this little village (laughs) and that's when my life just utterly totally changed Mm. so all these experiences happened because i had dropped out really Mm. yeah okay so off you go and you're looking for the 16th and i think that's when you met your guru tai situ right that's right that's right because we although we were planning to go to sikkim we had not received a reply to our letter from the Karmapa and uh, and we didn't have any money left and we ended up in Dharamsala um, and uh, that's when I got a letter from the abbot of um, Sami Ling, um, Akon Rinpoche, at the what used to be called the post restaurant, you know, where you pick up your post when you're traveling. Mm. And I got a letter from him uh, saying that when I uh, um, he knew where I was, I had told him where I was. And he said, um, go and see Tai Situ Rinpoche. When you're there, go and see Tai Situ Rinpoche. So uh, this, these words, the name of Tai Situ Rinpoche, just went, again, I went like instant instant um recognition of the name although i had never seen the name uh, uh, or anything like that i just knew that i had to um see him and so i got on a bus and went to his monastery um which he was uh, building it was at a very very early stage and um there i met uh sita who turned out to be my guru and it was 
really like a, a very extraordinary process. I don't know if I did I say did I say anything about that story? I gave him a Buddha when I met him. I gave him a, no. a Buddha I had just bought in Delhi, um, uh, and I asked him to bless it to fill it because it's a it's a whole process where you uh, you need a llama to put the oh to animate it you know to 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 fill it with substances and to give it that um the empowerment it's it's empowering the statue to be you know to manifest yeah, to manifest presence yeah yeah to have the presence it's called rapne and he did that. He kept it overnight. He did that. I picked it up in the morning. And then, I, you know, I told him I was going to Ladakh. And um, he said he was going to Ladakh. So I said, oh, well, can I go with you? So he said, yeah, sure. Why not? I'll send you a letter when I'm in Srinigar. And uh, you can come and share good times. Why not? <laughs> mm. And so I left like I was overjoyed, absolutely overjoyed. And I, I traveled. Um, I got to Srinagar and uh, went to the, you know, to pick up the, the post every day. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. There was no letter. Nothing happened. Finally, I got to the point after a couple of weeks where I realized I better just go. You know, I better just get on the bus and go. So I, I wrapped up the, um, the, the, the blessed sacred statue in a nice little sort of cloth and put it on the top of my rucksack, which I kept beside me on the bus in the front seat. I didn't put it on the roof rack or anything. And then um, we had a very strange episode where uh, the bus in front, um, you know, this road, this road from Srinagar to Leh is, is at that time, this was the late 70s. You know, it was it was really like a death trap. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> you know, like straight down thousands of feet and quite a narrow road. So you could you could never really pass another vehicle. So there were times where uh, it went one in one direction and then it would go in the other direction. So the buses had to go in convoy. Uh, and uh, as we were crossing the first pass, which was uh, the Zojila Pass, going into uh, Ladakh, um, the, the bus in front started to go in a kind of zigzag until it crashed into the mountain wall oh. and turned over flipped over so then we had to take the it, the brakes had failed in other words the brakes had failed and the driver decided to crash the bus to stop it from going over the side so we pulled out the passengers who were surprisingly not really injured and we had to sleep over night on the road in the bus and then uh, the army came the next day and pulled the, the, the dead bus away. And then we carried on. And then the driver started to try to make up for lost time. And he was going rather fast around those hairpin bends. And I thought I was going to be on my last journey. So I had my hand on the top of the rucksack to like, look at the Buddha before 
you know, before I died. That's what I thought. I thought this bus is going to go overboard and I'm going to die. So when we finally stopped for the night, we were supposed to stop at dark, but we didn't. We just kept on going, kept on going, kept on going until there was nowhere. It was nowhere to stop. And we just suddenly stopped in the middle of nowhere. And, um, you know, and the bus driver said, go, go to these houses, you know, and knock on the door and see if they'll take you in. So I did, I did, I knocked on the door of one house. I went inside, they were very sweet and, and they were very kind and uh, gave me a room to stay. And I turned on the light and I, you know, pulled out the, opened up my rucksack. And there it was, the cloth was there, but the Buddha was gone, gone. So I was dismayed to say the least and very, very, upset i couldn't sleep in the morning i asked the bus driver if he would stop because i thought somebody had stolen the buddha so he stopped and they got their luggage down and i started to look through it and then i and then they started to complain because you know i was accusing them of stealing and then i thought this is impossible i can't look through everything so i i said okay never mind let it go let it go and I did. I let it go. Carried on. Had a, a, a you know a very interesting time in Ladakh, and then got back down to Srinagar after I don't know, must have been at least a month or six weeks, something like that. I got back down to Srinagar. I found a letter in the post office from Sitarimshe, and he said uh, the letter said uh, could not go to Ladakh this year because no permit. And uh, when when you come back, come to Sherabling, it is your your home. So I went back to Sherabling and uh, I said to Sita Rimshe, as soon as I got in, I said, uh, Rimshe, um, you know, that statue that you blessed, it was stolen. And he said, stolen? No, I don't think stolen. And... Uh, then I said, well, what happened then? And he said, oh, um, like, um, demater- no, gone back to its original home, he said, gone back to its original home. So I went, oh, Dharmakaya. And he said, yes, dematerialized. So then I understood that something serious like it it had saved our lives it had absorbed the energy the negative energy and saved our lives and dematerialized in the process and that was Mm -hmm. my introduction to um the first book that i wrote actually blessing power of the buddhas in which i described that fateful journey oh wow that fateful kind of predestined journey so Mm -hmm. my life has been full of um very strong experiences like that. Hmm. At least that part of my life, not, not, it hasn't continued that much. Let's just uh, talk about Chabdrung. And uh, so you met him uh, and there was obviously a, a deeply felt connection. And he, at the time you met him, was acting like a civilian, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, like an ordinary guy. Yeah, and he was drinking, right? Yes. He drank all the way through. Yeah. He he very much, 
he reminds of Trogium Trunkpa Rinpoche. Yes, he had he had a lot of that. He had a lot of that. Except that Trumpa was uh, had a very uh, well organized, uh, shall we say, satsanga. Yes, that, that was had very very uh, prescribed intention and so on. Whereas Shabdrung, he he was just he was in one way, was he not sort of denying who he was and yes. not wanting? Just tell a little bit about who he was when you met Well, you, you know, the, the, the first Shabdrung of Bhutan uh, was um, the inheritor of uh, the lineage of um, um, Pamakarpo and um, Pamakarpo, the White Lotus, and uh, Tsampagyare. Sampagyare was um, basically what the name means is Sampa, which is barley, mm. and shit is the same. In other words, same taste. <laughs> so he was <laughs> Sampagyare. So he, he was the reincarnation from that lineage of the Drukpa. And uh, the original Drukpa went from, uh, you know, India, not India, sorry, Tibet, where he was born. Uh, to Bhutan on the back of a raven, it is said, and carrying with him a very precious relic of uh, his uh, incarnate re previous reincarnation, uh, uh, Karsapani. It was a little tiny statue that uh, came out of the bones of uh, Tsampagyare. And um, it was a thousand-armed Chenrezig. And I've seen it. I've seen it, and uh, it is like a Natsuki. It's like a Natsuki. It is so fine, but it's Rangjung. It's it's uh, naturally arising. It, it naturally arose from his remains. Mm. And this was very precious, and he didn't want it to be stolen because the, his lineage was in um, somewhat disarray. It was being contested. The rightful heir of, of this lineage was being contested with another um, with another family. It was another one of those instances of who is the real one. Yeah. So he went to Bhutan and he tamed Bhutan uh, with, um, I can only call it black magic. Hmm. Uh, he, he manifested uh, during battles. He manifested all sorts of terrifying apparitions, which uh, this was when Bhutan was being invaded by Tibet. There was it was a time of the fifth Dalai Lama, and uh, they were trying to invade Tibet. So he manifested gruesome apparitions to frighten the Tibetans, and um, you know there was lots of gory stuff happening. People got their heads cut off, and they were impaled. And and uh, when you when you look at this whole thing, you think like, what is this? You know, what 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 is this? Well, I read all this. I read all this. After I met him, I read all this. So I sort of caught up with his history mm. and um, the fact that he was, you know, the genuine incarnation of this person, the Shabdrung, who was enlightened. He was considered to be enlightened. Now, I've visited Bhutan since then. And I've seen that the photograph, the, the image of the original Shabdrung is in everyone's home. 
the original Shabdrung, the Nawong Namgyal, is in everyone's home still. So he's like the, the, still the spiritual king of Bhutan, but because of the assassinations that occurred and all the rest of it, the hereditary lineage, uh, the hereditary uh, king, kingship. Um, but, the, the, but the Bhutanese still uh, recognize the Shabdrung. Mm. And so does the king. Has to. Has to. Has to. But this one, the reincarnation, they never wanted to recognize him. So, so he was like a king without a country, you could say, or a general without an army, as I said to him many times. He had that kind of um, persona. You know, he was, he was like, he was sort of lost as if he had just, this extraordinary person had just landed somewhere without anything. He was like that. Mm. So then ensued a love affair, which is well uh, documented in this, uh, in this book. In the, in the book. Yes. Um, I have to say that he pursued me. I did not pursue him and he fell in love with me and I did not fall in love with him for quite a long time. And I only went with him because uh, my guru, Sita Rinpoche, said, when I asked him, he said, um, if he wants to marry you, you must marry him. Um, you know, it's it, like he gave me the, he didn't say you have to, he didn't say anything like that, but he just gave it, you know, the seal of approval. So I, I let it happen. Mm. I just let it happen. I mean, I, I followed my vision, I guess. I had a vision of something, and I followed it. And even though it never seemed to match up to my vision, the reality never matched up to my vision, but I kept on going anyway, hoping that it'll all come right in the end. Mm. Well, uh, you have to read the book to realize that it didn't quite come right but something happened for sure and uh, oh what can i say well let's uh actually so the first thing you said to me when you said maybe you ought to read this book because uh, we can talk about uh it's it's got a lot of parallels and of course trungpa rinpoche is probably the the biggest one because most people who have any connectivity to Buddhism in this country, know who he is and know some of the story of, you know, he drank on a day-to-day basis, sake, you you know, and give these extraordinary lectures. I mean, I, I was there <laughs> myself. And, uh, and then there was a lot of uh, sexual stuff going on, exchanging of partners, polyamorous, all, all kinds of, stuff was going on yeah so there so there's many people so back in the day of course ramdas had done a bunch of stuff with him helped open naropa in 1974 that he started trumpa and ramdas would get a lot of flack from people going how can you promote this guy look at what he does you know very obviously conservative 
minded people for the most part, but or just regular people because it was really out there. And uh, and it would be termed this being is uh, part of the crazy wisdom tradition of Tibetan lamas. Okay, and you do talk about that in this book. And I remember at one point, Ramdas, I actually have the, I think I did a podcast about this, uh, uh, introducing Ramdas's talks, and I found one that he talked about exactly this. All of you that think that I shouldn't be involved with Trump or Rinpoche, well, here's what I think. And it was, it was a, a very open-minded take on who he was and uh, that people shouldn't be just rushing to judgment uh, when they are indeed not embodying the kind of spaciousness which would allow for something to occur that wasn't sort of kosher in their minds, right? I don't know what the mm. right word to use, but their projection. So here, here's uh, something from your book. So you say, this is the great dichotomy. In recent years, the term crazy wisdom applied to the kind of teaching that is crazy wisdom. From the start, it was apparent to me that Jigmes, which is, um, I guess, the his regular name, right? mm. uh, behavior did not conform to the first type. So I started thinking, is he the second? Is this irrational behavior part of an ambiguous way of showing me something about myself? Is his irrationality part of his being a crazy wisdom teacher? This was the question that would haunt me for the rest of our relationship. Was this crazy wisdom or just craziness coming from the disturbance, the stur disturbances of his psyche? Was he a power maniac who was trying to possess me because he had lost everything else? Running alongside this, I could feel myself falling in love with him and he with me. So the question soon became, was I in love with him as a person or with some idea I had of him? When he said, you're not in love with me, you're in love with the Dharma, it forced me to make that instantaneous decision to accept him as he was. I decided simply to, to serve him, feeling the power of love would redeem both of us. In that moment, I started to walk a tightrope, making split-second decisions about where to place my next step, maneuvering like a trapeze artist to weigh and balance every movement in the dance of love with a great spiritual master who is also a dominating macho man. <laughs> Boy, you, uh, yeah. you got a lot of courage, madam, for <laughs> how you went through this. I mean, uh, I mean, everybody, you know, read this book. I mean, we're talking about, he had somebody who was like, uh, he would call, he called Guruji, who was some kind of maniac monk that That's was right. thinking they were going to protect him and thought that uh, Norma was distracting him from his call and uh, like several times was out to kill her. And, you know, there was all sorts of escapes that are going on in the book about getting away from this maniac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it was um, an extreme um, adventure, you know, an extremist. It was like that, the intensity, the extremity of the whole thing. The uh, emotions, I went through everything with that. And it was, 
um, there was real magic in it and also I would say black or white magic. I'm not sure which. Really, to this so, day. Yeah, it was, it, you know, it was, you know, that, that bit about um, the uh, Nigerian guy and uh, mm. the, yeah. the, the, that episode. Uh, it was, the, the whole thing was like it, it could um, give you a nervous breakdown, frankly, or even drive you crazy in a completely other way but uh, i was very glad when it was over really yeah yeah i was very glad i was released from something i i I had to go through something and uh it's it was not um you know part of it was wonderful of course you know i mean there were episodes that were wonderful but uh the the overall thing was um it was uh, very very hard it, it, it was very hard on me i just wanted to have a normal life <laughs> yeah well, that didn't seem to happen there for quite some time but for quite then, some time. Yeah. yeah then so how about this little thing uh i, I at some point i guess you're Let's just say there was some jealousy thing that came up, okay? And oh yeah, that you were one. Shouting oh. at him about that, and then here you said, as I was, you know, she was shouting at him, and then suddenly you say, "I saw his hand swing round, coming towards me with great speed, and before I had time to utter another word, it struck me on the head. The force of the blow was so great, I spun round and landed on the floor." The shock stilled my mind, making it crystal clear. There were no thoughts, no conflicting emotions. The whole episode vanished. I got up, straightened my white lace nightdress, and looked at him with perfect composure. And you said, that was really powerful. It cleared my head. Let's go to sleep. So this yes. this is a kind of thing that you read about, from, you know, great masters who who they can do it with just a loud but you know a sound coming they can do it without anything happening or they can do it with a physical uh, expression so people would read this go oh my god norma thank god you got out of this this is a a maniac hitting you like hitting a woman my god you know and this is not I mean, the way that we're confined in these mental boxes about how things are is extraordinary, more extraordinary than the shit that happened to you is the way I see it. Mm. And I mean, maybe it's because I lived with, you know, for a year and a half in India with Neem Karoli Baba and, and I saw everything happen in not, yeah, of course, he, in, in this case, he didn't hit anybody. But he did all sorts of things to crush the mind, to crush jealousy, to crush the story, and so on. So this thing around crazy wisdom, you know, is it just somebody using power to get what they want? Or is it a, is it a real process? Well, you see, what made it so confusing was that it was in a uh, love relationship. 
Right. For one yeah. thing. Yeah. Which is another kind of relationship to that of a guru disciple. And yeah. he was never my guru. I never, I never saw him as my guru. Although I think what he did to me and what uh, Sita Rinpoche confirmed was very, like, guru-like, you know? So it was almost like a natural thing for him to do with somebody who's, um, who's locked into a, a duality, you know, um, a good and bad uh, dichotomy and a judgmental mind. And as an academic, I was extremely judgmental and uh, intellectual, I think, quite intellectual. And so it was a way of, um, you know, naturally, he, he did it naturally. So uh, I went through that experience and then I uh, realized uh, kind of what Badriana is and how it works. And the only way it can possibly work is if um, it's a one-to-one relationship, and um, and it, it it's on the disciple side. It's based on devotion, faith, and devotion. And on the guru's side, it's it's based on uh, pure motivation. Hmm. Bodhicitta. Yeah. You know? Bodhicitta. So bodhicitta. So. I was, you know, as he wasn't, he was a, I'm tr- trying to see, there were times when, many times where I could not see the compassion, you see, but I was looking for another kind of compassion. I was looking for the the gentle kind of, you know, probably Christian idea of compassion, which is very peaceful, very gentle, and very sort of like Dalai Lama, you know, lovey lovey-dovey you know yeah that kind of thing i was looking for that and i didn't realize what wrathful compassion was and i think that's the essence of the you know the uh, the confusion in my mind i couldn't recognize what it was until much later and i didn't write this book until 20 years after it happened Mm. 20 years um it happened it it happened up until about the the end of the 80s and then i wrote the book in oh gosh when did i write that no it was 20 years um when did i write that book 2011 oh not that long or because uh just a minute. Where when I don't think it was. I think it was earlier than that. Hang on. Um. Doesn't give me a date here. Yeah, it's okay. Right. Neither. Uh, no. Certainly, we know uh, you wrote it far after the facts to give you far, far after, far after. Maybe it was fifteen years after it happened. Yeah. You know, it was. It was a long time after, and I um, had I needed that time for it to just uh, to process something yeah. that I wasn't even aware that I was processing. But suddenly I realized this is what happened. I saw it as a story, 
one day I saw it as a story, a very interesting story. Mm. Before that, I was all involved in it. So when my emotions, when, when, when I withdrew sufficiently, uh, my emotional um, aspect, I could see the plot, the story. I could see how the whole thing became a very interesting story. In fact, you know, and a very original story. Mm. So then I decided to write it. I sat mm. down, I wrote it. It took me three years to write it. Oh, I, really? Wow. Yeah. Should be a movie, Norm. I know, I know. Please try to get it done. <laughs> okay, we'll talk about that after. But okay. so there's something, this may reflect some of what you were feeling as you wrote this book that you put in a quote that I found interesting from George uh, Feuerstein. I don't think I'm, spell I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh -huh. uh, and it says, adepts are above good and evil only in their ecstatic realization. In their embodied condition, they are as susceptible and liable to moral considerations as the next man or woman. Otherwise, we must treat them on a par with the truly insane who are moral morons. Okay, I don't know. Does that reflect a little bit of, of how you were feeling about this right? yes yes it does it does i i uh, i mean it it would drive i think it would drive anyone either to sanity or insanity you know it, it would drive you to something would have to wake up and we What is uh, I'm thinking about that quotation and what it actually means. Well, uh, he's saying, you know, when as, as as far as I get it, someone who is in in that state that is beyond duality in that mm. moment, everything that happens is perfect, and there's nothing, there's no self gratification involved whatsoever. That is only there for for the betterment of of disciples or human beings that happen to be around. But once they are not in that embodiment, <clears throat> then they're just a schmuck like the rest of us. Well, so and yeah, and, and, they, and they also have to behave by the same standards. Yeah, yeah. As every moral being. I, uh, I don't believe that is true whatsoever for a 16th Karmapa, a Nimkaroli Baba. Uh, I didn't meet uh, Dilgo Kensi, but I have to assume he's in that realm somewhere. Uh, I just think that uh, these are beings that have gone beyond duality, yeah. are not here yeah. for any self, anything. There is no self that's going to get anything that, that, yeah. that manifests anything. Whether yeah. Shabdrung was that or not, I have no idea. I mean, you went through so much with him. I think beings like 16th Karmapa, Nimkaroli Baba, and I'll, I'll leave it just there because I've directly experienced them. They come in who they are. They just come in with. But I, there must. I, I know that Neem Karoli Baba, there was a lot of tapasya. You know, when he was like nine, ten years old, twelve years old, off into caves. You know, all that kind of stuff. And I don't know sixteenth history as well. Uh, actually, I, <laughs> with Neem Karoli Baba, it's all uh, a bit of hearsay here and there. People don't really know exactly what he did, but there are caves that they found uh, near the village that he grew up in and so on. Um, 
and I'm assuming 16th did a lot of practice as well when he was a young monk in Tibet. Yes. In Tibet. Yeah. So I guess what that does is just align the human being with the, uh, with that which is beyond duality and it just aligns lines it up i i don't know if that makes the difference who would know anything like that but uh, uh i i do you know the greatest thing for me in this book uh, aside from this incredible story norma which i loved and everybody you'll have a great time because it's a as i said this is a movie <laughs> it, is. You know, it, is. it really yeah. is but um when you met, you describe your meeting with the 16th, and I could, uh, I mean, eloquent words that escaped me. Uh, I would have said the exact same thing about Neem Kar my meeting with Neem Karoli Baba. I looked at this man who seemed to see everything. His body seemed unlike flesh and blood. He was as pure as the elements, wind, water, earth, air, and space. Actually, a photograph taken of him a few, few years later would show a blur of multicolored lights instead of a solid body. His expression changed constantly like clouds shifting across the sky. Sometimes he smiled with delight like a child. Sometimes he stared wrath, wrathfully black as thunder. The force of his presence alone brought a hushed silence to Carmenaro, the, the place where you were. It felt like the tiny room had turned into a cathedral-like space. A muffled sob came from behind me. I turned to look at Maggie, my friend, her face wet with tears. Time was standing still. There was a feeling of expansion, everything stretching like elastic a sense of openness as if nothing were fixed or substantial. It was the experience of the world in a grain of sand, infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Compassion was a presence you could almost touch. And you've mentioned a little further along, Karmapa looked at every person and truly seemed to know each one. And that is exactly my own experience. And that's a, just a wonderful description of that, of a being that has gone beyond. Huh? Well, even thinking about it now um, makes me feel how precious the whole thing was and how extraordinary it was that you could meet someone like that, that you, you know, that oneself being so you know like ordinary how how you could even have that kind of karma to end up in that room at that time it has never ceased to amaze me mm. the whole thing me neither <laughs> me too yes it's just like <laughs> it's wow it's just gold, a, gold wow. dust you know wow. Well, and the nice thing is that you've been able to share your experiences in these books. And, uh, you know, uh, we have done something similar related to our being in America and sharing Maharaji, Neem Karoli Baba, obviously Ramdas being at the uh, top of that heap of sharers. Uh, 
and uh, what else can you do? You know, I said, you know, when he left uh, the first time after he met Neem Karoli Baba, who said to him when he went back to America, do not talk about me in America. Of course, he started lecturing in 1968, and that's all he did was talk about him, you know, not ever mentioning his name or where he was. And, oh, I don't, you know, you can't go there, but that kind of a thing. I said to him recently, why in the world, after he told you not to, I mean, I knew the why, but I just wanted to hear him say something about it. How could you, how could you do that? He told you not to do it. He said, I had a jewel in my hands. How could I not do it? You know, which was that impulse uh, led him through these decades to where he, you know, passed five weeks ago. Uh, and gave all that jewel he never stopped sharing that till his last breath so that's kind of our legacy and uh, uh, it has to be with people that we've had just cannot imagine being with uh, that kind of a presence and not sharing it it's not possible it is not possible and uh, and both of these beings have proved beyond their their physical physicality of a being in a body that that meant nothing. It means nothing. They continue both to uh, bring people to the Dharma. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I feel that the one thing I can do that's beneficial in my life is to write about these experiences that I've had to share them. Yeah, because it's rare. It's rare these beings are not going to really turn up in this dark age that we're in as they did before 20, 30, 40 years ago. The ones that came out of Tibet, the 16th Karmapa, even, uh, you know, Swami Muktananda, who was also very great, um, your, your guru, Neem Karoli. It was a cusp. We were on the cusp that, you know, at that particular moment that they were available. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And uh, it's not um, it's not the case anymore, really. Now we get uh, different stories, and the Badriana is proving to be a very difficult um, ideal. Mm. Yeah. A lot of roiling going on there, but this is a good subject. This is something uh, we actually, uh, Norma, we should explore a little bit more. Uh, but right now we're going to have to leave this subject and this extraordinary experience that you had. And all of uh, your book. we'll get these books uh, into the show notes so people can um, can can get them and uh i can't more i mean each one of these books is uh, the three that i've read are are all fantastic and i really appreciate that you took the time to to write these they've been very special for me uh and so i really thank you and i thank you for being here norma oh thank you so much thank you thank it's you love, it's a pleasure to meet you and and i i hope that everything um continues 
in this inspired way that you suddenly brought into my sitting room again. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Mutual. Absolutely mutual. Uh, so this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. And of course, we have a whole host of amazing teachers and thought leaders doing podcasts. And again, I reiterate, we will have everything you could possibly need to hook up with Norma's books, okay? So we shall see you next week on Mind Rolling.